Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja, California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, for the 94th episode of the Rock Art Podcast. And we're blessed and honored to have Hannah Salyer, a... Uh, rock art aficionado and author of, get this, a children's book on rock art. And we'll learn more about Hannah's background, subject matter, and why we, she was compelled to write such a interesting and one-off, probably one of the only examples of this particular genre. Hannah, are you there? Yes. Well, welcome. Oh, thanks so much. It's been quite a journey, hasn't it? Yes. It's surreal to be on the show with you because I've listened to so many episodes and actually the Rock Art Podcast was a, a formative resource and just incredibly helpful in the writing of this book. The book so is called Ancestry, The Mystery and Majesty of Ancient Cave Art. Well, that's quite a moniker, I have to say. Let's step back a bit before we plunge into the, the main subject of our interview and interaction, our conversation here on, on the Rock Art Podcast. Hannah, how in the heck did you get interested in, of all subjects, rock art? So how I got into the subject of rock art is a story I think many of us share in that I remember quite vividly my first exposure to rock art as a pretty young kid. And just being utterly besotted. I mean, I, I really, I remember seeing, I think it was Cuevas de los Manos, like a either a replica or a giant photo at the Natural History Museum. And I remember 
being a kid and just feeling like, wow, this is really profound and really important. And I, I didn't have the language for it at the time. Yeah, certainly. It, it really did. It was very powerful. And you somehow got the bug about something that we call rock art. So where is uh, the Cueva de los Monos? I believe that's in Argentina. Argentina. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that was an initial exposure. You must have somehow done something or had activities that uh, caused you to continue down that path at some point. What was, what was that all about, Hannah? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I am first and foremost an artist. I'm a storyteller. I make, as you mentioned, I make picture books for kids. And I, I write many of the stories. Sometimes I'm just illustrating them, but always, always illustrating. So sometimes I'm writing, sometimes I'm illustrating someone else's story. But I have my hands in a lot of jars artistically, and I always have. I do ceramics, I paint, and I, I make my living as an illustrator, but have always been an artistic kid. And I think inherently felt connected to, you know, those ancient artists and those ancestors. And so, you know, throughout my <laughs> existence, rock art has come up a few times and it's, I've always taken note, you know, when I was young, I was really interested. Then again, in high school, I remember taking a history class and they started with the Lesko caves. And I mm -hmm. remember being introduced and just wanting to stay on that subject. I'm like, forget all the other stuff. I just want to <laughs> stay here. <laughs> then, so what, what brought me to, you know, present day and wanting to make this book and feeling really strongly that, you know, it was important for me to make this book was Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Re, you know, watching that, actually watching it for the first time. Um, and I remember being like moved to tears and I was like, that, there needs to be a picture book about this. So that's, that's kind of, you know, it kept coming up in my life and was always really notable for me. So you had mentioned that you're a um, first, an artist, correct? Yes. So tell us a bit about being an artist and how that has come about and how that particular passion and competency twins with the study of rock art. Well, like I mentioned, you know, I always have been a creative kid and was always finding ways to just make things and mess with all different types of materials, not only 2D, but I was like sewing and using clay. And I still bring that different types of media into my, my work now. And, you know, I was the type of kid in high school. I just hang out. I hung out in the art room um, didn't, didn't do much else, but I just was, you know, I was really lucky to always have family who supported me on that path. So art in all its different fashions, it's different subject matter and tapestries appears to be a central pivot point, a central sort of thread in your entire life. Yes, indeed. And, you know, again, like I mentioned, I think I've always felt, you know, the focus of my art has always is and has always been on, I think, ecosystems and other species and plants and animals and 
But at the heart of that, I think, you know, looking to other things on our planet and just being so enamored with them helps me understand my humanity. So you've really had a a passion almost in the anthropology or ecology of art in terms of looking at our biosphere, looking at the natural world, looking at uh, animals and plants and relationships and things along those lines. Am I correct? Yes, absolutely. Really well put. Well, interesting. I don't think I've uh, had someone with your particular niche anywhere on the Rock Art podcast. Everybody comes to this adventure in different ways. You also had mentioned that part of your past has been involved with children's books. You said that very quickly. Maybe tell us a bit about that chapter of your life. Yeah, I would say, well, first of all, I'm still in it. (laughs) I'm kind of, um, this feels like, you know, so for context, I went to art school. I went to Pratt in Brooklyn, Pratt Institute, and, uh, you know, met some really wonderful mentors there, had some, made some great friends who are also talented artists and, you know, being part of an art community, I feel like it, it can often enrich your own practice. And it certainly did that for me. And, you know, at school, I I kind of came to this realization that, you know, when I was younger, I would write and draw books and make books and, and, Uh, write stories and comics. And I loved storytelling. That was always really important for me. And I, it's something that I just would kind of do very inherently and naturally just about, I don't know, just, you know, how to kind of understand, make sense of my life as it was happening. Storytelling was always crucial for me and, and certainly books as well, but I loved writing stories in school, I was reminded that I loved writing stories and, and telling visual stories and realized, oh, wait, I can make a career out of, you know, creating books for young people. And the minute I realized that, that was just incredibly exciting to me. Quite an epiphany, huh? So it's the visual storytelling and also for children and young adults, certainly, that uh, has been part of your life, correct? Yes. Yes, exactly. And I, I, you know, you mentioned children and young adults and it's, it's true. You know, some, another thing I consider when I'm working on books and writing stories is I want the stories I write and work on to be accessible to everyone. You know, Maurice Sendak, who did, he created Where the Wild Things Are. Um, He had a famous quote along the lines of, you know, you should never write down to children. Picture books should be for everyone to enjoy. And I always think about that when I'm working on books, you know, for young kids. Every every person in every stage of their life should be able to enjoy a picture book. So that that's a huge underlying philosophy for me when I'm when I'm working on these stories. And how does that guide your hand in, in terms of entertaining the notion of different pictures? How do you bridge the gap between all these very different ages and levels of maturity, I would think that would be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, it, it certainly is, you know, and I think what I've realized in doing this work, and I should say, I also have experience working directly with children. So 
Ah. babysitting and being a nanny and also like working in, um, you know, I, I used to teach and still teach some art lessons for kids. I am in close proximity to kids and I see what they pick up on and it's, you know, it's a lot. And sometimes people, you know, we, us older folks don't give young people and little people the credit, you know, for, for what they can kind of understand, but it's just about finding the right way to convey ideas and, you know, making sure your vocabulary is accessible. I love kind of using really interesting words and dropping big words in there, but you also need to make sure that you have a kind of scaffolding in your story to help a reader understand a word that they might not know um, or learn a new word. Um, so that's, you know, an example of, of something I think about when I'm writing. Um, I don't necessarily want to use, I'm not trying to dumb down language in any way, but, you know, I, I like to keep things simple, but when I can, kids love learning new, fun, big words. And I remember <laughs> loving that. <laughs> so I, I try to do it when I can using that language. My son tells me I vomit a dictionary. <laughs> that's what, what an image that's what he, yes that's what he that's what he tells me so and uh my esposa para siempre my wife forever is a little tahana mama and so we have tremendous fun with words she's speaking spanish and teaching me and i using my standard vocabulary and so mm -hmm. if i use a a word that's too complicated for her i'll, I'll say do you know what that means she goes, no, but I'm sure you can explain it to me. <laughs> you know, it says, but I'm not sure I wanted to know quite that much about it. <laughs> so anyways, words are um, fascinating and it kind of forms the tapestry of my life as well. People call me a wordsmith or the grand synthesizer. So I think you with uh, your niche are a grand synthesizer as well in terms of twinning or pairing pictures and words. Talk to me about that. Ah, that's, that's a really good question. And I would say it's different with every story. For Ancestory in particular, my rock art book, I would say the images came first. Really? That's I, surprising, huh? Yeah, yeah. They. I was really meditating on these images um, from all of these different rock art sites around the world. You know, I was really grateful for the Bradshaw Foundation because they, that site was just so great in helping me access and learn about all these different sites in a very like centralized location. So I remember I was just kind of doing a lot of research about all the sites globally. And I remember in the beginning, I was just trying to work through the images. I was painting, I was using pencil, I was kind of um, using, there's a type of acrylic medium that's essentially material that you can mix into paint that mm -hmm. has like bits of pumice stone in oh, it. Really? And I was kind of experimenting and with paper clay and all these really textural things. And of course, charcoal and different, different drawing minerals, essentially. So different mediums, mediums to execute some of the uh, pictures for the book. Yes. Yes, exactly. I, I didn't know what I was doing, but for this book, it was 
very much starting with the visuals, trying to, to get a certain feeling. What feeling was that that you were trying to communicate or entertain? I, I, I would imagine it was, uh, had to do with the emotions, but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, it certainly did. And I think, you know, it, I was trying to get back to that feeling I told you about of just being utterly gobsmacked, awestruck. Yeah, really, really awestruck and just so fascinated and, you know, just conveying this sense of power and mystery that is inherent in rock art, right? Because these images are so powerful, but there's also, as much as we're learning about these sites and these images, there's still so much we don't know. And that's, that's fabulous and a great place to stop. In the next segment, we'll continue this uh, conversation. See you in the flip-flop, gang. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey, all you rock art podcasters. It's uh, Dr. Alan. Alan Garfinkel, your host with the California Rock Art Foundation. And we have uh, Professor Salyer, Hannah Salyer, who's... Um, going to be sharing with us more reflections and some of the details surrounding her forthcoming book on rock art oriented towards the younger cast of individuals, children's book. Hannah, are you with us? Yes. Hello, Alan. Hi, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> believe, it or, believe it or not, that's the same name as my, uh, my uh, daughter, Hannah. She spells it that oh. way too. So you're in good company. So what oh, about okay. this? So what about this children's book? When did you uh, get the bug or get the opportunity to put such a book together? And what was the, you know, the, the development surrounding that initiative? It sounds like you were cultivated or had the opportunity to talk about this to a, a major publishing house. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. I was super lucky. So the way this book came about, I had just finished up my debut picture book, which is called Pax Strength in Numbers, Pax as in P-A-C-K-S. That is about different species who work together and why they work together in groups. So I had just finished up the writing and the illustration and I turned it in. And that was actually, I had worked on that book with Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I got connected with them through, I have a, a literary agent um, who focuses specifically on children's literature. You know, she connected me to Houghton Mifflin and I, you know, for that first book, I worked with a team that just really, really understood where I was coming from. My editor was right there with me on the same page. She, um, I would say, holds a lot of the core kind of values that I do, which is incredibly lucky to have my first editor be someone so amazing. Her name's Kate O'Sullivan. And uh, so, you know, when this idea popped up, I 
certainly was interested in working with the same team again, because we had such a good workflow and, and she really understood where I was coming from. Tell me about the values and where you were coming from, Hannah. Give me sort of a glimpse of what your consciousness was, what your value system was. What was it that you were espousing sort of in the uh, picture book, Mm. in the uh, initial book? That's a good question. So, you know, as I mentioned before, I feel like I make a lot of my work kind of zooming out and thinking about the planet as this living, breathing kind of organism of sorts with all these different ecosystems and really focusing on, you know, the, certainly the principles in that first book, how we, we really do all work together on this planet, within these systems, like we, we rely on each other, you know, and when I say we, I mean all different species. What you're saying, of course, and you're probably aware of this, is that sort of an indigenous their cosmology, their religion, is that all things on this planet, all things in the landscape, are sentient. Love that word. They're alive. They have uh, agency. They make decisions, and um, that they they matter. This is plants, animals, trees, rocks, etc., water, etc. And so, by taking that perspective, you're sort of living in the same world as indigenous uh, native people. Yeah, most certainly. It's very different than the Western or Cartesian perspective, which sort of views humankind as sort of the purveyors or managers and uh, all else in the world sort of as our, not our playthings, but but our responsibility to do things with and allow us to create value and, and engineer a particular area so it's more productive or or having the particular resources or uh, materials that we need to live meaning humankind very di- very different and you're, you you understand what i'm saying don't you hannah oh yeah absolutely i mean this is something i think about all the time and i think you know i've always been drawn to stories that really push back on human exceptionalism Mm-hmm. stories that are rooted in not, you know, cultures that aren't Western kind of that have dominated the narrative for so long. These like imperialist stories that talk a lot about taking and how humans are, like you said, the kind of pinnacle of evolution and all of these, like those ideas felt so damaging and foreign to me. It's really very interesting, Hannah, because I'm you know, I work with a, a whole bevy of archaeologists, anthropologists, various mm-hmm. professionals with various hats on. And in the language that they use, in the perspective that they use, it comes in, even when they're dealing with uh, resources that are native, you know, generated, be they archaeological sites or artifacts. So there is this this kind of philosophy or this kind of kind of perspective. So in other words... Even the field that I work with, it's called cultural resource management. (laughs) Mm. Well, I mean, isn't that a rather Western version of uh, the way to think about things? These are cultural resources that we're managing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then when I developed uh, the California Rock Art Foundation, right, I thought I was being very sensitive to Native Americans, right? 
And I, so I had some key words that went along with California Rock Art Foundation. And it was, you know, uh, respect and, and conserve, discover. And the Native American says, no, sorry, get rid of that word. Discover? <laughs> you didn't discover them. I've been here. I know where they are. <laughs> I did them. You're not discovering them. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you, you see how, how sort of sensitive or sort of duplicitous some of this stuff can be? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely. It's something I kept uh, experiencing in my research for this book. Well, tell me about that. That's interesting. Yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, tailing on your comment about the word discover. Yeah. In the book, I'm I'm really careful to always say if the, the notion of discover is in there, it's always rediscover. It's always, ah. you know, like unveiling something that was known about, but it wasn't maybe known about to, you know, it was lost for a bit. Right. Um, I talk about these sites as treasures that were. Oh, I do too. That's good. So powerful and held they held so much power and they still hold so much power, but they got lost and then we're just refinding them. And it's, it's really interesting talking to you, Hannah, because they're, this sort of picks up on some of the work I've done in this, in this field called cognitive neuroscience or neurotheology or neurophysiology. And that's uh, become one of, my, one of my more favorite things. And, and the more you talk about the way you see rock art, it, it certainly feels a bit like this where we're talking about how people view the rock art and to this very day, it still communicates to them. It causes them to emote, to have emotions. And this emotion might be fear or mystery or intrigue or curiosity or joy or sadness or, or, or surprise, or even homage and connection to a higher power. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. And when I, I haven't visited many sites in person because I didn't even mention, but I started working. I got the contract for this book right as COVID hit. So that's a whole other, (laughs) a whole other um, vein I can go down. You know, I, I had all these research trips planned and then it was just like, poof, none of that could happen. And that's actually how I got connected to the Rock Art Network and Dr. Carolyn Boyd. And uh, yeah, she connected me with Dr. Jeanette Deacon and Noel Hidalgo Tan um, in Thailand and so that was a really interesting pivot that happened because of COVID. But to, back to what you know you were saying about emoting and, and feeling the power of these sites, I was really lucky to, to visit one site in Utah. It was uh, Horseshoe Canyon, the petroglyphs mm-hmm. of Horseshoe Canyon. And it was like, I remember getting, it's, it's amazing because for Horseshoe Canyon, you have to hike five miles in to the canyon to what they call the, I think it's the the great theater, the grand theater. Um, but uh-huh. all throughout your hike through the, throughout the canyon, there are scattered petroglyphs. So you're, you're making your way to this theater of sorts. And, you know, you're seeing all, along the way, there's incredible petroglyphs. There's also a ton of, uh, of graffiti, which was, 
sad to troubling, see. Troubling and sad, um, yeah. But, you know, getting, seeing those petroglyphs and then getting to the theater, I mean, it, it felt like, it really felt like the artist could have been there 10 minutes ago. I mean, it was just so profound how, yeah, yeah, how much power, you know, I keep repeating that word power, but. No, but I, I, I feel, I feel, I feel the same way, Hannah, because yeah. when you see these images, it's like you're, it's like they're being seen for the first time because they're, they're speaking to your soul. They're speaking to your eyes and your heart. And, yeah. and sometimes it's been quite a while since someone has visited them. <laughs> if you're, yeah. if you're in a uh, out of the way spot, you might be one of the, you know, few people who've had an opportunity to uh, process and understand and, you know, see, see these images. And um, it certainly feels like that anyways, Hannah. You get this sort of, what do you, I don't know how you'd put it. You just get a special flavor, don't you? Yeah, I would say it was kind of, for me, it felt like stepping into a time machine. I mean, it could yes. have been any time on the planet. You could have told me like I had been transported back to a different era and I would have <laughs> believed you. You know, it just it feels like time is frozen in a sense. But it's also yes. you also feel the immensity of all the the years and the the millennia that have passed. And um even though, you know, these works, some of them are, you know, a couple thousand years old, maybe even a couple hundred years old they're still, they're connecting to something much, you know, it's, it's, well, I talk about it in the book. It's our ancestry story. It's this story that continues and it's, you know, there's no, there we're, we keep writing chapters in this book and it's just a story that keeps unraveling. And I, and I keep talking about when I think about rock art, I explain it as a freeze frame. <laughs> Mm. It's a it's it captures yeah. an image and a, a feeling, an emotion, a picture, a panel, a story, as you put it, locked in time. And it's like an invaluable time capsule that provides a window into the past, into the author's perspective on what was important in life and yes. how how they perceived the universe and the cosmology and the, the uh, you know, the, the relationship that they had to their world. And um, it is rather, rather special. And I think that rock art could be one of the most valuable data sets that archaeologists have to deal with. Although I, I might be biased, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not an archaeologist, but I would agree with you as an artist. I mean, it's, it's so, uh -huh. so important as I, you know, I had felt before, but working on the book, I felt even more so like, this is incredibly important. It should be part of every curriculum, you know, it should, kids should be learning all about this. And I don't think kids have a ton of exposure to it unless it's something that, you know, you live close to a site or, Maybe it's mentioned in your art class like it was for me. Maybe you get to a museum that has an exhibit about rock art, but it's it's not um, as common as I would hope, you know, it would be. And it's not. It's really not something that the the general public or the school systems have really entertained a notion of 
beginning to entertain and inform simultaneously. Hannah, that's another good place to jump off and return for the third and final segment of our conversation today. And I think on this last piece, we're going to delve (laughs) right in to the book and talk about it in specifics. Thanks, Hannah. See you, you, gang. See you in the flip-flop. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, welcome back, all you rock art podcasters, for the third and final segment of the 94th episode of the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, California Rock Art Foundation. Hannah Salyer, noted author and artist, is with us today to uh, give us a glimpse into her thinking and her work on uh, writing a children's book on rock art. So Hannah, you're writing your children's book on rock art. Tell us about the adventure, uh, the challenges, the peaks, the uh, circumstances, your experience of crafting this book, and uh, bring us along on that little bit of a journey. How's that, Hannah? Yeah, sure, Alan. (laughs) And what a journey it was. (laughs) It really was. (laughs) I mean, I had such an incredible time working on this book and it it took me a while, took probably about three and a half years in total, which, you know, there, there are folks who work way longer on books, but for a picture book, often folks are, are surprised to hear that you spend so long on a, on a picture book for children. But, you know, this one had, oh, it had, it had so much, you know, I, I wanted to make sure I was doing really extensive research. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not an archaeologist. I don't purport to be one. And, you know, I, I really wanted to get a sense, not only of the sites themselves, but what we know about rock art. And that's where this, this podcast really was so helpful. Hannah, Hannah, what was your, what was your biggest surprise in your research that you discovered? Hmm. Hmm. Biggest surprise. Or even, or even some sort of a theme that you teased out from your research? Well, I think what's, you know, being said in in the story is it's not as Alan, I'm sure, you know, you've, you've seen the book, gone through it, a digital copy. It's not, I tried not to just spit facts out. I'm really trying to engage the reader. I'm asking a lot of questions because what I've found in, in my research and, you know, reading texts and finding websites about all these different rock art sites and, and theories and, and, you know, stuff, um, information on materials is that it's more important to be asking questions than jumping to conclusions about what, what's going on, you know, like when, so it's so it's about the questions. It's about the mystery. It's about asking interesting questions, but not necessarily clearly or even completely responding to them, but perhaps they provide even more interesting or sophisticated questions as one delves into that subject matter. Yes, precisely. 
So tell us about your questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't plan it this way initially, but what ended up happening is I'm, I'm talking a lot about the senses, what Mm -hmm. you're seeing in these, when you, you know, are witnessing these sights and, and this art, what you're hearing in the sights what you're feeling, you know, the tactile nature, that was a huge, the, the tactility element was um, a really big consideration for me in crafting this book. I actually, for a lot of the illustrations, I was building ceramic replicas of sites and, you know, drawing, you know, rep- replicating or referencing actual rock art sites and then photographing those mini sites that I had made uh-huh. and then illustrating over the photographs oh to give word. this sense of, you know, you're really feeling the tactility of, of stone and of minerals from the earth. Cause I was using that stuff. Yeah. And I, you really wrapped your mind and your body around the subject. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned, I couldn't, do a lot of research travel because of COVID. So I, I brought the sites to me. <laughs> I, yes. my studio is filled with caves, wow. mini caves. Yeah. Fabulous. Hannah, what an, what an interesting way to develop the interactive qualities of rock art sites. That's fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And I don't know if you're or aware, or you probably are from all of your listening and research to this, uh, archaeoacoustics element of rock art sites such as yes. that um, amphitheater and others that are are sites that uh, naturally are ensconced in a some kind of an amphitheater or a, a resonating place and even that has echophonic properties yes exactly i was thinking a lot about that because i i myself am not a musician but my partner is actually a musician and he's very sensitive to acoustics. And of course, you know, I heard that wonderful episode about archaeoacoustics of the Rock Art Podcast. And that really helped me think about that aspect and how to include it in the story. And basically, I'm asking, I say, you know, what did our ancestors think when they heard these echoes? These, I can read actually, you know, many of the sites also have unique soundscapes deep resonant chambers, rocks that ring when they are hit, and walls that seem to talk back. So, you know, kind of crafting... The the ringing rocks. Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to craft that that theater for the reader, who's, you know, ostensibly going to be a child. I want them to to imagine and feel like they're there. Yeah, well, you, you... This book sounds like you delved in a way, and, and probed and asked uh, enticing questions and have the, the story develop. Uh, tell me a bit about developing the storyline. That must have been a, a challenge as well. Oh, no, it's a walk in the park. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, very, very, very easy. <laughs> yes. Because people have told, told me, I, I, I did a, a movie, and you may have seen it, it's called Talking Stone. It's a, it's yes. a, a show was on PBS and with a, an award-winning cinematographer. And he said it was one of the hardest efforts he's ever done 
to make the rocks talk, to make the, mm-hmm. you know, the, them speak and sing and have engaging uh, narratives so that someone can watch a movie and, you know, see a story or connect with a story that hooks them and that provides them with an understanding and a, um, uh, you know, an interest level uh, to elevate them and engage them throughout an hour long journey into this science and study of rock art. And he said it was very, it was difficult. It was difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So my journey took me four years to make this, you know, hour long cinematography. And you took Mm -hmm. about the same time to do this book. People wonder about that. I've done lots of different books and articles. My articles take about two, two years. Books take about four minimum. And that's for a, you know, a lengthy book or something along those lines. And um, some people seem to be able to knock them out much further, but I don't think they've engaged the subject in sort of a scholarly, deep and abiding way. Do you agree, Hannah? Oh, in terms of, of rock art? Yes, in terms of whatever subject, but even with rock art, to really you know, be a scholar and understand what you're working with, the subject matter, it takes time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the kind of what I discovered quickly and was not surprising to me, you know, in dealing with the the subject matter of rock art, there are some philosophical underpinnings here. There are many. And kind of going back to what we were talking about with, you know, making it accessible to children, you know, that that was a challenge, really there were so many edits to the manuscript and the language and the story structure. Another consideration that I was thinking a lot about was I wanted it. I wanted the book to certainly give kids information because kids love to just learn. That's the beauty of nonfiction books. They get to learn new things, but I also wanted to leave a lot of space for mystery and curiosity, and even a little, not fear, but a little kind of uh, darkness. Yeah. Reverence. uh, Yes. You know, kind of an homage, you know, that that's sort of an overwhelming experience, correct? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think leaving space in stories can be really powerful. You know, I have certain spreads where I'm I'm listing information. Like I have a spread about different rock art sites that have more kind of symbolic images and what that Mm -hmm. means. And then I have following that a spread about, you know, the different prehistoric species we're seeing in in some of the rock art sites. But Uh then I have spreads that are, have, you know, very sparse text that are really jarring imagery there's one spread that's a fold out. It's going to be a fold out spread that has no text at all. And it's just you in the Lascaux caves, actually with the four boys who rediscovered it. And I wanted, you know, I think that silence is really important. Just the absence of words and letting, letting the reader take in, you know, behold this incredible visage before them. Yeah. And it is, it is very, very powerful. And I guess as we get more and more information about it, they talk about the flickering fires that could have been there and animated the rock art 
images so that they moved and they created and were enlivened on the walls of the uh, rock canvas. So there's there's that. Yes. And then the and then the sounds, the sounds that they might have heard or thought they heard from the crackling fire or from the rocks themselves, the dripping of water, and how those uh, emanated or reverberated. So all of that and much more. Well, Hannah, as we near the end of our interactive conversation, tell us a bit of when the book will be available and anything you think you'd like our listeners to hear or take away from this uh, hour of our discussion. Okay, well, I will start with you know, the, the book is going to publish officially on April 11th, 2023. So this spring, I actually believe you can pre-order it right now, which is super helpful. If you are listening and you want to check out this book and you want to help a small creator and, you know, help this book take off, pre-ordering, as I'm sure, Alan, you well know, is so helpful. It shows the publisher people are interested. As far as takeaways from the book, so I should mention there's a lot of back matter in the book. There's the the story and then the back matter is kind of just info in the back that couldn't be put into the manuscript. It just didn't quite fit, but I felt, you know, felt like it was really crucial to have in the book. And, you know, there's a site map of all different sites around the globe. Not every single one, but I tried to hit every continent and small like groups of islands. And then I have, amongst other things, I have an author's note where I'm talking about the fact that, you know, it's really important to recognize that to our ancestors making these markings, it was not merely art. And I think you've talked about this before too. Rock art is kind of a misnomer very much these sites were, from what we understand, they were functional, they held information, they were kind of living sites. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, I I mentioned, like, they, they continue to hold that importance and those functions. And in addition, they're now time capsules. They hold this incredible information about our history on the planet. And I also, you know, I, I mention supporting and uplifting indigenous communities all over the place, because as we well know, they're treated pretty horribly by most countries. And there's been a lot of problematic language around rock art and, you know, not giving credit where credit's due. So I, I felt that it was really important, you know, to, to mention how Indigenous communities are a part of this story, a really big part of this story. Amen. I like that. Well, Hannah, that's about all we have time for today, but I'd love to invite you back when the, when the book is out and we'll, we'll revisit some of these incredible topics. Hannah, it was just a delight and a pleasure, and I'm so glad we, you had an opportunity to share your passion on rock art and the book. See you soon, uh, all my listeners. See you in the flip-flop, gang.
Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Come.